Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Coach Kasim and Mike Isratel back on the show. And they are talking a lot and in depth and lots of nuance surrounding different approaches to essentially deloading. Uh, it was kind of a discussion surrounding hypertrophy programming and periodization, but mostly talking about deloading. And uh, we talk about Kaz's approach there and Mike has many good questions for him. And I think it's just something you're probably going to have to listen to a couple of times to really get the gist of things and get a, a full understanding. So yeah, kind of strap in, have your notebook and have your thinking cap on. This is not one of those podcasts to just kind of listen on a random walk and not really pay attention. You will take away nothing. So guys, uh, as a reminder, we do have our online coaching here at Revive Stronger. So if you are confused about how to go about your training, your nutrition to best get your results or you're struggling with your results, then we have people here that can help you and help you in a big way. So I'll leave you with that. We have a link in the bio for our coaching as always. But without further ado, let's get into the chat right here. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Mike Isratel and Coach Kasim back on the podcast for another discussion. I think at the end of that episode, and I had actually a number of people reach out to me, uh, so I'll say it was heavily requested. Uh, and for an episode it was, where they the guys started talking about kind of periodization for hypertrophy and there seemed to be some differences in kind of methodologies there. And I thought, who better to get them back on to discuss the thing because and that's what everyone wanted to hear as well so i think probably um kind of to start i think if you guys are okay with it i think if Casim, you were to kind of introduce your model uh kind of your general philosophy surrounding kind of periodization for hypertrophy because i think probably the majority of the listeners are somewhat more or at least yeah more of the listeners are more familiar with mike's uh, kind of philosophy there so uh yeah i don't know if Cas, you're okay with that yeah, I'll do my best to put everything in in Dr. Mike's language, if like just since your audience is more familiar with that, right? Because we use a concept called trainability, but it's very similar to what Mike calls SFR, like stimulus okay. fatigue ratio. Um, the general principle behind what we're trying to do um, is is that we're just kind of looking at if we're looking at hypertrophy over time, is we're trying to see how we can get the we'll say the most bang for your buck at any given moment in time and so we're not committed to the meso having to be this linear thing that's super long but more so that like once we start to see certain things drop off uh and we tend to look at it more from a recovery thing so if we're looking at biometrics if we're looking at sleep digestion heart rate variables like you know resting heart rate and blood pressure etc like that um is we're trying to essentially look at signs that I'm going to start getting a lower return on investment for the amount of volume that I'm putting in and the amount of effort that I'm putting in. And then what we do is we do kind of our version of a deload, which instead of just a drop in volume is kind of a shift in stimulus. And usually that shift is to bring up whatever we see as the bottleneck that's coming in on the recovery side. So if we look at somebody in whatever their meso is, it just looks like, man, their conditioning is dropping really fast. And we see that as maybe that's going to be something that is going to be the bottleneck to recovery, right? And that's going to start building up more and more fatigue over time is that when we do our deload is that we're going to then 
take a take a run at that. We're going to switch over to training that would facilitate those type of adaptations. So, the example I gave in the last um, the last podcast was is what we'll typically do if we have somebody and they're focusing mostly on you know a hypertrophy program that's built around maximizing like the volume of mechanical tension and effective reps or however you want to qualify that. Is that then we would jump out. Uh, from that, once we start to see that looks like things are starting to be, have a diminishing returns, this is then what we'll do during the deload is instead of just bringing the volume down, this is that we'll train with a little bit more density, right? A little bit more like lactic focus, maybe a little bit more aerobic focus, depending on what we're seeing in the feedback and hoping that that potentiates better recovery and tolerance to the volume, meaning that when I say tolerance to volume, not I don't mean that it takes them more volume, but I mean that it's is that as they're pursuing the volume they need for the stimulus, we're seeing less negative feedback in terms of the recovery biometrics, in terms of how it be affecting their sleep and their energy outside of the gym, you know, et cetera. Right. So blood pressure is like a really cool one for us to look at because you know, if you look at you know, somebody trying to build muscle over a six-month block of time, it's like if I can get somebody the same amount of hypertrophy, but with like a lower average blood pressure over time it's like is that a healthier way to pursue that goal by just kind of having those intermittent rather than going a really long period and letting that build up and up and up and up and up and then maybe during a mini cut you know or a big long cutting phase it'll come down just because of what you're doing with the diet and the training and you'll see that cycle but we're looking at kind of maybe looking at that on more of a micro level so our mesos are kind of like you could look at as instead of just having one linear block, we have these small little deloads where we're essentially trying to potentiate recovery by shifting the stimulus, um, if that makes sense. I mean, we can get to more nuance, but that's the that's the 30,000 foot view. Okay. Mike, do you have uh, follow-up questions for that or? Yeah, a ton. Cool. I'll let you start. Um, Cass, can you expand on the digestion problems? Um, I mean, we track everything from, you know, tracking your poo how's that going to how people are feeling like bloated after a meal um and also looking at how people are like postprandial energy and stuff like that so the the basis for this mike like in terms of where we started coming up with the system is i was doing these six month blocks of online training and basically we had like all these people going through there and we had very phase type training and we were also doing an absurd amount of data tracking with that in terms of weekly check-ins and then having people monitor a whole bunch of things, you know, everything from photos to morning heart rates to whatever monitors that we could get. So it was a combination of like, you know, us trying to get as much observational data as we could, but also this big online program. And that's where we started to see that like, okay, training certain ways seem to have different effects on digestion for certain individuals and different effects on heart rate and stuff like that. Some of it intuitive, some of it not as intuitive. And so now that's the same thing we're looking at is we're looking for the patterns of like, okay, if this person's pushing here, we might actually see that their stools are starting to get a little bit loose, right? Or they're starting to feel a little bit more bloated after meals, for example. That's something you could systematize and think there's a pretty decent connection with like, like fatigue uh, mediated in your view. You think it's like people just get really fatigued and then... then or is it linked to the exact type of training that they're doing? Like yeah. sets of five or something versus sets of 20? Or... Yeah, I mean, because digestion is so tightly integrated to the autonomic nervous system, right? So if we're pushing volume or they're pushing fatigue and they're, you know, they're holding inflammation that they're not able to resolve before the next session, et cetera, you know, the, or the whatever it happens to be, I mean, 
ANS is, there's so many different things that can affect it, but usually it's a combination of volume and intensity. And so it's like, well, okay, one of those would need to come down. And then we kind of look at not just the digestion, but what else is going on, right? Is there, is there resting heart rate also elevated, right? Is there, you know, motivation to train also elevated and stuff like that. And then we can get an idea of like, all right, should we just back off on the volume or should we switch over to something a little bit more aerobic for a tiny bit or whatever, and then jump back in? Because what I would rather do like the thought process is, is rather than dig in to weeks where you're getting a very small return on investment, I would rather address the problem before it really starts cutting into that so that I can get back to training with a high ROI as soon as possible. That's, that's the logic there. Yeah. And as far as um, shifting the stimulus, can you give an example of like, let's say someone's doing a traditional sets of 10 to 15 reps uh, what does that deload week look like for, for your perspective as far as a stimulus shift? So when we're looking at a deload, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take away from the main stressor of that. So in the example that you gave, it's like, okay, so we're looking at, I'm guessing these are going to be linear sets, right? And we're taking them somewhere close to failure, plenty of rest in between, right? So then if we're looking at 10 to 15, then it might be like, well, why don't we, instead of doing these linear sets with, you know, a ton of rest, why don't we go to more of like a density-based protocol? And the example I usually give, because a lot of people are familiar with it, is like the Vince Gironda 8 by 8, 30 seconds rest in between sets or whatever. So it's basically, it's not a, a perch protocol. It's mostly a pump protocol, or you could look at it as like a AMPK-driven type of a stimulus that you're shooting for, where it's just like, there's enough mechanical tension to maintain muscle mass, but we're, we're taxing the metabolic system more than we are accumulating a volume of mechanical tension. And so we're looking at, instead of having those linear sets with long rests that we would focus on for hypertrophy, we're looking at having a dense repeated bout of sets that is accumulating metabolites over that period of time and not having a lot of those sets close to failure. Because if you're familiar, you know, if you do the eight by eight method, you only hit like, you know, failure at the very, very end, right? So you're doing a lot of submaximal work densely and accumulating those metabolites to get to fatigue rather than putting a lot of mechanical stress on that. And so that's one of the ones that we find that seems to allow a lot of those biometrics to recover really fast. The other one that we'll do will simply be like, if you are doing high reps is we might take you to a lower rep protocol, right? Um, and just, and have it more be like, well, instead of like linear sets of repeating the same exercise, what it'll be is it'll be lower reps and maybe you'll be like agonist antagonist, you know, supersets with, you know, a little bit less rest routine so that there's just a tiny bit of, um, you know, efficiency in the workout that it's not taking, taking forever. But we're instead of, if we think that the stress was more because they were pushing the, that end of the rep range that we might actually instead of using density, just bring the reps down so that it's just no, like very little metabolic demand. Okay. Uh, in, in your view, what is the goal of a deload primarily? Well, one would be to resensitize you to be able to go back into whatever, you know, you're, you're trying to focus on, right? So if you're goal is to perch feed, be like, all right, what do I need to do to then be able to resensitize myself so that when I jump into the next hypertrophy block or whatever, that I'm getting as good a result as possible, the least amount of volume, whatever. And that's why we're looking at trying to make the stimulus as, as different as possible. And the other would be to bring down 
any other things that could be limiting my performance or recovery and see if possibly we could even potentiate some of those things, right? So, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people in the bodybuilding industry, right? You've probably sat down with them or whatever, you know, they walk across the, you know, they walk across the room or whatever, they're out of breath, et cetera, whatever. It's like that, that, that can't be a good state of recovery when the other 23 hours of the day, somebody feels like crap and they feel very lethargic versus like, okay, when I'm up and I'm amped to training, I can get it done. So it's like, that's probably going to make us run into, you know, a fatigue situation where we'd have to deload sooner. So if during the deload, we can still resensitize while also getting some adaptations that are going to make our, you know, maybe our aerobic capacity a little bit better, then we'll be able to push that next meso longer before that fatigue from, or the, we'll say lack of recovery from just being poor systemically or aerobically conditioned starts to hit us. And then we have to, you know, back off from training. So it, it seems to me based on, on the stuff I know that when we train folks to become very good at recovering from stimulus um, and, and the most extreme version of these people as like a high level endurance athletes is that a lot of the systems that allow you to have really high work capacity um, actually desensitize you to muscle growth concomitantly. So for example, a lot of AMPK activity driven by endurance-like adaptations, higher volumes, shorter rests, uh, hypocaloric condition actually falls under this as well. Mm -hmm. When you have a lot of that, you become really good at doing work. So like, for example, you can take endurance athletes who are relatively untrained in lifting and you can do sets, you know, 10 by 10, very close to failure in the squat. They almost don't get sore and they need three seconds between each set. And I like, just do another one. Okay, fine. Yes, you do really, really in good shape to lift weights. The problem is that the regulated mechanisms like AMPK, for example, that are so upregulated in them, make them so good at doing these things, uh, you know, uh, give lots of fuel availability to the cell, et cetera. They're also the ones that uh, distinctly and directly inhibit anabolic processes, which is why almost always the people that have the highest work capacities are, are quite atrophied and they, they're not very big. Um, so, so to me, a concern would be if you're ramping up catabolic um, and uh, sort of pro-endurance machinery that puts you in better shape to train during the deload week, two concerns is if that ramp up is significant, the, the amount of, uh, uh, you know, endurance-like work you need in order to get better endurance is typically quite a bit. Uh, it's kind of the, the land, the hallmark of endurance work is that you need plenty of it to get the job done. There's like one set of, you know, 30 reps doesn't really give you much of anything. So that would probably seem in my view to, to risk adding lots of fatigue. And even if the fatigue isn't a problem, after a week of that, if you become sort of in better shape, you're able to recover better from lifting weights. My concern is that the thing that makes you recover better, which is the shift to slower fiber type isoforms, the expression of more um, catabolic regulatory machinery like MPK, that shift also degrades your ability to build muscle. So while you are very good at lifting weights for many, many reps, you lose the ability to get as much of a stimulus as you could. So like in, in my experience, if people are, get better at endurance activity, they tend to get uh, worse pumps. Like it just takes it's eight sets to get a pump instead of six sets to get a pump. And ideally, you want to get a pump, you know, as soon as possible. Uh, direct literature saying that people who get pumps, bigger pumps and pumps early, seem to grow more than vice versa. So, how would you, how would you wiggle around that, Kaz? What do you think is the? What am I missing there as far as inference? Well, I think magnitude and 
a lot of that being the accumulation of chronically doing those things and also when you're in the state of those things. So we're not we're not throwing people on a one or two week like density based training protocol and then they're coming out endurance people. They're just sucking less at those things. Right. Meaning that think of it instead of we're not trying to create like this huge level of endurance in these hypertrophy athletes. But what we're trying to do is maintain a minimum competence so that it is not a limiter, right? We're just trying to reduce that thing from being a limiter in their performance and their recovery, right? So the the magnitude to which we do this and the duration that we do this is much, much smaller. And then if you look at those things, like, you know, AMPK is, you know, it's the anti to mTOR. So you can look at it as like, well, it's catabolic in the moment that there's the energy demand, but it's also the switch that gets the fuel to come back in so that you can turn on the mTOR sooner, right? And so, the better you are at being able to turn that on and get the fuel in, then this you theoretically it's like, well, this the sooner I could carry over. But if I'm always doing things like I'm in a calorie deficit or I'm always doing the aerobic activities, no, you won't be anabolic then and you won't be anabolic if you know very often if you're doing those pursuits all the time, you will get better at the things that you're doing the majority of the time. But we're talking about taking people and not having them do extreme endurance activity. We're basically just having them do slightly more aerobically challenging resistance training to bring up their competence above a threshold so that, you know, when they walk up the stairs and when they're digesting their food, that those things are not as stressful on their system. So that basically the, you know, it's not enough to negatively impact what they're going to get from their stimulus or to increase what they have to do to get the stimulus, but it is enough that it's going to make it so that the rest of the day is basically a lower stress threshold for them so that their recovery can be a little bit better. Their sleep can be a little bit better. Their digestion can be a little better, just their overall health. And doing this, I actually find that this is actually, if somebody's starting the, you know, they're in a mezzo and they're like your, uh, your proxies uh, of having a good pump, for example, is, is that we find with this approach, this like acute approach, is that it actually people come back and then they have better pumps, right? They actually get really good pumps on, you know, like an IRM or, you know, the, the incomplete rest Gironda type protocol. But then going back into their regular training, they carry in those improved pumps like better than they were prior to that shift in stimulus because we've just given their body a little bit of a boost and it's like okay now they're holding a little bit more glycogen because of what they had in the deload right and they're resensitized a little bit right and maybe they're managing the inflammation the fatigue just a little bit better so we actually find the opposite now i imagine that if you took this and you're like okay we did these things and we did them for you know six weeks eight weeks 12 weeks and then you switched over then you would have that problem and that also has to do with the fact that when you're just taking time away from rate, like weight training and high, higher intensity training, you're also changing the hemodynamics of the tissue, not just like you know what's going on in terms of the fiber typing and switching over to more metabolically active muscle fiber types rather than the more anaerobic fiber types. But they're also changing like capillary density and stuff like that. And so when we weight train, we tend to have a high amount of force and pressure in the muscle relative to capillary density, which is why we can occlude that muscle and fatigue it very easy and get pumps very easy. For an endurance goal, that's not necessarily beneficial, right? You want to have high capillary density. So, but those things only change if you do that one activity and you do it chronically for a long time that you shift there. But if you just jump out for a couple of weeks, it's not all of a sudden that you grow like five miles of capillaries in your quads. And now all of a sudden it's really hard for you to get good pumps in them just because you did a week or two of more dense style training. I got you. So 
but could 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 someone say, well, you know, okay, so it's definitely not going to make you super endurance adapted um, if you do this for a week or two or three versus if you did this for ten or twelve or thirteen weeks. But could could somebody say, well, it seems to me that if we do it just for a few weeks, we definitely get fewer of the supposed benefits than we if we did it for a long time. But also, if you know, we expect increased capillary density to actually make our training. Uh, less uh, effective, uh, you know, per unit rep because the occlusion effect doesn't work as well. You know, endur endurance athletes need to train an inordinate amount to get any kind of hypertrophy. Wouldn't that one or two or three weeks of marginal increase in capillary density and these other factors, AMPK activation, et cetera, wouldn't that, wouldn't we expect that to have a marginally negative effect on hypertrophy? Not huge effect, of course, like we'd see in endurance athletes after 10 or 12 weeks of training, but like uh, uh, maybe a marginally negative effect. So for example, like one of the very predictable ways to boost hypertrophy is to get someone to just stop training at the gym and they become unbelievably sensitive to hypertrophy. Some of their fibers convert more into the fast twitch isoform. You know, the older nomenclature would say you know, type 2X fibers that you, you sort of like type 2B fibers that you sort of couch potato fibers. Those are the most hypertrophic fibers ever studied. Wouldn't we want people to be more on that end of the spectrum after deload? Like, so in, in, in my education so far has brought me to the idea that in case you deload was a primary thing you do during deload is it doesn't really matter what you do. You just have to do a lot less of it. And by doing a lot less, it does two things. It brings the systemic fatigue down like crazy, of course, local fatigue as well, but it also maybe gives you a slight shift into your muscles becoming a little more detrained and that detrain uh, allows them to be very sensitive to hypertrophy and get some sort of rebound effect. But in your model here, you're proposing it's like we train them a little bit more into the direction of slower isoforms and AMPK dominant activity. And it wouldn't that make them a little bit more prone to catabolism than otherwise? That I, I, I'm sort of lost on where that enhances the anabolic activity. If we're, if we're directly impinging on mTOR even more during deload week than we would during standard weeks. Well, okay, well, I'll try and remember all the things. So. If we're Welcome looking to my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, uh, Steve, like if you're a really good podcast host, what you'd be doing is you'd be putting bullet points up for us while yes, we're doing Steve. this. Like, I mean, come on, dude. You're just sitting there. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. I'm just asleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, man, thanks. What? That was Kaz. Like, good job, guys. Yeah. I'll see you next time. Click. <laughs> um, okay. So if you look at it purely through the lens of just becoming more sensitive to hypertrophy training, then I'd say, yeah, do absolutely nothing. Like just go and do a coma for, you know, two weeks or whatever it is. Right. And it's like, sure. When you come out, you're going to have the absolute lowest threshold, but that's only looking at it through the lens of just like, well, okay, how sensitive I am. Right. But in terms of like the actual net hypertrophy we get, it's not just how sensitive we are to the stimulus, but it's also our ability to adapt to that stimulus. That means, you know, okay, how well can I replenish the en energy? How fast can I run protein synthesis? What's the magnitude that I can run it in, et cetera. So if we look at it in the instance of like, all right, well, if we just take people and we have them do absolutely nothing and they come back to training, yeah, they don't have to do much to get a response, but they're also extremely out of shape, meaning that their tolerance too much is also really low, right? So you could potentially look at it as just like, well, have we essentially deconditioned somebody that we have to actually lower them even more so they can't train at quote unquote, like what we'd like to have them at, like their MAV because they're so out of shape or when they come back to training, they build up their tolerance so fast that all of a sudden they run into like, well, 
now I'm unconditioned because I didn't do anything. I just sat on the couch for two weeks and now I came back. So I'm looking at trying to balance the two things of I'm trying to be low enough volume and low enough of the same type of stimulus that we get the benefit of the deload in terms of resensitization, but we also do just enough to facilitate recovery. Now, if we look at this whole like AMPK, mTOR thing and stuff like that, during the deload, right, you're not training a lot. So, I mean, you're, you're not trying to like, you know, keep mTOR on all the time or whatever. And actually, if you try and keep mTOR on, on all the time, it, it shuts off. So, I mean, AMPK, mTOR, those things have to exist in balance. Like when you train, the entire time that you're training, mTOR is shut off. Like it is all AMPK. Like every, like that's, that's the whole thing, right? And so having that system be better means that not only are you going to perform a little bit better, but you're also going to get to well, yeah, I can be doing the mTOR thing sooner because I can be resynthesizing glycogen sooner. I can be pulling in more glucose from the blood sooner. So everything from blood sugar regulation to managing inflammation, et cetera, gets a little bit better. But I don't have to train to the point where all of a sudden I'm starting to switch fiber types because I'm getting tons of these mitochondrial adaptations and I'm just becoming this aerobic beast. But what I am doing is, is I'm getting just efficient enough metabolically that I can run protein synthesis a little bit faster, that I can you know, re rebalance energy a little bit faster after a set, after a workout, that I can manage my blood sugar a little bit better, which is going to have just you know benefits over, over time, right? My cardiorespiratory system, you know, I'm not going to go out. I'm sure you, none of you guys have seen on our profiles of just like a bunch of 250 pound marathon runners, right? Like our meatheads that we train, they, they still suck at endurance activity. They just don't suck at life when it comes to those things. Like it's, it's like, okay, we're just trying not to get to the point where people are like dysfunctionally deconditioned, even though if you look at just like, well, this should make it really easy for them to get hypertrophy. If that were the case, powerlifters would be getting the best hypertrophy because they're extremely deconditioned, right? They don't have a slow twitch fiber in their body at this point if they've been doing this for a long period of time, right? I mean, I know I'm being a little hyperbolic there, but- uh, That's okay, I yeah, I get it. I think, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find that balance of getting, getting the resensitization, but also doing what I can to make this as healthy of an experience as possible, but also trying to say, how, how can I potentiate the recovery so that when we go back to that meso, that when I put somebody on one, they'll be resensitized, but also our potential for progressing through that meso is a little bit better than it would have been if we went into that meso in poorer condition. Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. I gotcha. All right, uh, one, one quick question, uh, just to follow up with that directly. If we're training week on week on week and we're training hard and we're doing lots of sets of, you know, anywhere between five and 30 repetitions, and, and let's say we even do the, the whole thing where, you know, as we notice that we are exposing ourselves to volumes that are maybe not as challenging as they once were, that we increase the volume of work to make it more challenging, right? Like, you know, you start out with six sets per workout, work up to eight, then 10, then, you know, whatever, too much fatigue and you deload. That process of training, uh, you know, specifically for the task, and that process of training for quite some time, weeks and weeks, and that process of incrementally making the task more difficult, whether we add load or reps or sets, isn't that the process by which we get into the best possible shape for that task? So for example, if you said, hey, you, you got to be able to do five sets of leg press and get as little out of breath as possible, 
what I would do is I'd start with three or four sets and vomit between sets. And over the course of time, increase the load, increase the reps. Oh, sorry, a very specific task, five sets of leg press for each 10 reps with 500 pounds on a machine and, and be as well recovered, have the lowest possible heart rate at the end of that experience. What I would do is I would work up from 500 to 550 over time or 525. I'd work up from sets of 10 to sets of 12 to 14. And then I'd also work from three sets to all the way to eight sets or something. At the very end of that process, let's just assume fatigue doesn't play any role for a moment, just the underlying fitness characteristics. I think I'd be in the best possible shape at that point, super specific shape to be very ultra good at exactly what it is I'm doing. That's like literally this, this open, shut book specificity principle. So to me, my question is, if we say, okay, there is, is potentially some mechanisms by which you get out of shape over the course of a mesocycle, my two candidates that come to mind for me instantly is one fatigue, you're actually in a really good shape, you're just tired as fucking beat to shit. And two is you're gaining weight the whole time. And when you gain weight, you're walking upstairs, starts to blow dick because it's a higher percent of et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so to me is if we take away the fatigue somehow, let's say through deload, and if we take away the fact that we've gained weight, which is kind of a given, like you're not going to lose the weight, you're not, you're not trying to lose the weight, you're trying to stay up there and stay nice and big and get bigger. If we take those two factors away, that whole mesocycle leading up to you know the last session where you say, oh, you know, we're really starting to get out of shape. Aren't I in underlying qualities, the best possible shake I'd be, be in for that task? Like, what is it? What are the mechanisms that are degrading my ability to do it if they're not body weight and they're not fatigue? What do you think? Well, so when we're looking at specificity and we look at like the neurological system and we're like, okay, what's the best way to get good at squats? Well, it's, it's to squat. It's very specific. It's very squat. Right? Like it's just, just do the motor pattern that you want to right. do. Right. When we're, when we're shifting out to physiology and we're looking at these things, it's like, okay, there's always going to be a limiter, right? Something is going to be the thing that's limiting your performance and something is going to be the thing that's limiting your recovery, right? There's always going to be like some sort of thing. That's like, that's the thing. Like that's, that's as far as I can go. And so if you're just saying, well, okay, because I'm doing this activity and I'm training in this way, it should make me good at training that way. And that means, but that's from the performance level. That's not affecting the recovery aspect. So it's like, what I would want is I would want the limiter in terms of what I'm trying to push stimulus wise in the gym, not to be any of the conditioning factors. What I would want to be is I would want to be conditioned just slightly above the performance demand of my hypertrophy training. So that I just removed that from possibly being the thing that was stopping me. That way it could be something that was more specialized to the goal that I'm trying to achieve. So it's like, okay, I'm trying to get a volume of mechanical tension in here, right? And so what is my ability to manage that, right? And what is my tolerance to that? Whether that be the metabolites built up in the workout, whether that be the neurological demand, whether that be, you know, whatever it is. That I want I want to run into one of those as the limiter. Like I want to chase that thing down in my meso. I don't want to be running through my meso and then I stop because, well, what I've done is I'm at the conditioning capacity for this activity. And so now what I'm trying to do to progress is I'm hoping that if I want to add sets or I want to add intensity to this or train closer to failure, whatever it may be, is that I'm trying to push up my conditioning to that level as well as adding the volume as well as. But if I had a little bit of room conditioning wise, then it, theoretically, it should be easier to add that little bit of volume, right? Or add that a little bit of intensity or proximity to failure and push that stimulus a little bit further rather than trying to push that stimulus up and also trying to drag my conditioning up at the same time, right? Because the stimulus that's good, if, if the training that you're doing actually becomes 
demand, like too demanding from a conditioning perspective, that's when I would say you actually switch from this being a more anabolic program to it's now it's like, well, if you've actually progressed to the point where this is more of a conditioning demanding workout, those are the adaptations that you're now getting from this training. You're going to be getting less hypertrophy and more actual metabolic type adaptations because that's now the limiter. And so that's the thing that you're trying to push against in your progression. Right. So think that one of the solutions to that problem would be I deload, I reduce a ton of fatigue, and then I make myself more sensitive to hypertrophy, and I start another mesocycle at significantly lower volumes because my minimum effective volume has dropped substantially. And now I can get a lot of hypertrophy without my conditioning being a huge limiting factor for me for many weeks on end. And that comes with, I, I'm not sure what downsides that comes with. Uh, on the other hand, if we try to train more endurance style for some time to increase our work capacity, we run into the problem of the fact that the endurance style training, while increasing our work capacity, increases it at the expense of our sensitivity to muscle growth. Coming back again, that you know, endurance athletes are much worse at growing muscle than couch potatoes are. So, like, didn't you know, we, we kind of want to be more like couch potatoes at the beginning of a uh, a phase of training. And I think that you know, maybe, maybe the, the conditioning is a real serious problem. But there's probably two ways to really get at that conditioning that I would say interfere with muscle growth the least. One is just fat loss. Like if you have sufficiently lean athletes, they just don't really encounter a whole lot of conditioning problems unless they're super systemically fatigued, then they just break down from whatever. Um, and the other is specifically training uh, in the way that they're trying to get conditioned for. Like if someone says, I like, do I have really bad conditioning in the, in the leg, sets, sets of 10 in the leg press? It's also the thing that grows the most muscle it, to me, it seems like, okay, we'll do lots of sets of 10 on leg press, make them tougher and tougher over time, maybe add some sets. That'll concomitantly make that person more conditioned for the leg press while giving them hypertrophic adaptations all the while. Whereas if you take a specific phase to work on conditioning uh, at the expense of current hypertrophic adaptations, because when you're doing the AMPK stuff, it's probably not hoping for a lot of muscle growth. That's the, the central machinery is in reverse for muscle growth. And also it may set you up for some more limited muscle growth in a week or two after it, but you'll have really, really great conditioning. And the thing is, at the beginning of a mesocycle, your conditioning is almost never a limiting factor anyway. It only becomes a limiting factor when the volume of work rises to an insane ability. But by then, you've probably washed out most of your short-term conditioning adaptations anyway, and now you're back to just doing the work of the program and having that be your conditioning factor. So, so to me, it's like, you know, if you, if you take time to condition this way, you, you, you sure do accomplish your task if you're better at lifting weights and you don't gas out as much, but that comes, I think, at the expense of muscle growth currently in a deload, which nobody cares about. That's totally fine, but also maybe at the expense of muscle growth for the next few weeks. Uh, do, do you think I'm misunderstanding that uh, somehow? It, it works big, maybe well, differently than I'm expressing? Let me, let me ask you a couple of questions before, before I respond sure. to this one, right? So let's, just, let's, let's look at a year of time, right? Like how many weeks are you going to deload and how many weeks are you going to do some sort of deficit you think over a year if like your goal is, is hypertrophy and your goal is to be as jacked but also not super fat like you know shredded so let's say same kind type of body comp you know at the end of the year how many weeks on average do you think you're going to spend deloading and cutting uh you know so deloading you'll spend depending on how you define it maybe like 12 weeks per year or something like that maybe 10 uh, and then fat loss phase in, a, in a, a true attempt over the year to gain as much muscle as possible. We're probably talking about uh, another 12 to 16 weeks. 
So I would say something like 24 weeks probably spent some total uh, in deloading and, and, and fat loss and, and the other part of the year spent in direct attempts to linearly accrue muscle mass. So you're, so roughly 50% of the year spending direct hypertrophy pursuit is- I'd say like 65, probably. 65? 65, yeah. Okay, right, okay. 60, 65, I, as much as possible. But the thing is like, hmm. the more you try to push the mass, generally the fatter you get. And also the, the more you, you know, the, the fatigue management's really not up to you. It's up to how much your systemic fatigue climbs, how fast. So if yeah, you say, gonna, well, yeah, yeah. I'm not so going to hold kind of a, any of these rules. I'm just trying yeah, to have it's, a, it's kind of top to down, with. you know, yeah, uh, right. sorry, bottom up. It's something that you just have to deal with at some point. Mm-hmm. Otherwise it's just not productive. So here's where I, here, here's, here would be my counter to some of those things. It's like, okay. If I take the weeks that you're just deloading versus the weeks that I'm doing our version of a deload, I would say, well, what we're doing is actually a little bit more like those weeks are a little bit more hypertrophying than the weeks of just doing less, right? I would say what we're doing is slightly more effective than just doing less, definitely more than sitting on the couch, right? What do you mean effective? Like in signaling hypertrophic outcomes? I would, yeah, because I would say even though, because we're not taking them so far into the endurance realm that you're going to, you would get zero hypertrophy. They just wouldn't be very good hypertrophy programs, right? So like if you do the, like, especially, I mean, it depends on the level, right? If you throw a beginner person on a Vince Duranda type workout, I mean, they might, they might still get jacked, even though like, okay, they're not resting. You're get jacked on cardio too, yeah, so. exactly. Right. So if, if we're looking at, if we're looking at this and I look at it across the different types or whatever, I'm like, okay, I think that opposed to doing nothing, if I could do something, but still get just as resensitized to hypertrophy, to me, that's a win. If also it reduces the number of weeks that I have to spend on the fat loss side. So basically if I'm stealing time away from needing to cut because I'm keeping my body fat just a little bit lower from you know doing these other weeks and ultimately keeping like my blood sugar regulation healthier and all that stuff that's just going to make it easier to cut fat as well. It's like, I look at, I look at that year and I'm like, I thought, I feel like I'm getting a little bit more efficient because not only am I getting the effect of the deload, but I'm able to spend a few more weeks on dedicated hypertrophy. I'm able to do it with an average better health throughout the year. Right. And the, the way that we're doing it, we don't see any negatives from the aerobic adaptations because we're doing them just slightly, you know, they're just, think of it as like, they're just one step off of what you think about hypertrophy into the metabolic direction, right? They're not all the way onto the spectrum, unless somebody has like a dedicated cardiovascular thing, whatever, that we do have to get in. Well, it's not the primary goal. It's just a consequence that we're still accumulating enough mechanical tension volume during those that it's going to be something. It's just not, I mean, you know, how, how, how minuscule do we start trying to measure these uh, hypertrophy measurements, right? Like it would be measurable, like if you do this for two weeks and then you just, you know, if we do an MRI before and after that, you probably- Just in theory, I mean. Affected. But in theory, yeah, you're still, you're definitely maintaining, but you should be still be making some progress, right? Because you're still getting in a little bit of effort. You're still getting in fiber level mechanical tension and you're likely getting some novelty from it being a different rep range, a different metabolic demand, likely a different exercise selection. So it's like, you're getting a little bit of 
novelty stimulus on that as well, right? But it's so low that from a genetic expression standpoint, we're still going to, you're still going to get resensitization because we're still going to see recalibration of the enzyme concentrations and stuff that are going to allow us to then go into that next hypertrophy meso and respond as if we had done just a, you know, almost nothing. Yeah, so, so to me, resensitization is an increase in the activity of mTOR or sensitivity of mTOR and a concomitant decrease in AMPK. So as you go through a training cycle, both AMPK and mTOR expression increase, increasing challenge increases mTOR, increasing volume of work increases AMPK. And then at some point, AMPK starts to rise faster than mTOR. And that's when you, you know, you're essentially spinning your wheels for no purpose. So what I, what I get you're saying here is like, we still get anabolic activity on the net balance but we're also trying to push AMPK higher than normal and mTOR lower than normal. Uh, how does that resensitize? I, th I thought that actually desensitizes. Like if you have AMPK expression over the whole week higher than, than you did in the previous weeks in order to drive those adaptations mechanisms, um, and it, you know, doesn't that desensitize you to hypertrophy? Wouldn't you have to get rid of that high MPK activity in the week after or something for mTOR to be truly express itself? Because MPK directly inhibits mTOR. So like you want mTOR to become more sensitive and more expressive, but you're inhibiting it the entire time and you're essentially driving these catabolic regulators up. Uh, isn't it just leaving alone the thing that really gets mTOR to, to shine? These things, I mean, my understanding is, is that these things, the the cycling in terms of their on and off and their change in sensitization is on a very, very short cycle, right? Which it would have to be in terms of managing energy balance. Like you can't have like long up and down regulations of these things. They need to be able, they, they need to be able to switch very, very fast, right? And then within a cell, right, depending on concentrations of AMTP or AMTP, just made something up, right? Write that down, AMTP. That's new oh, that's not that like a new but Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so just just the we're, we're, like the the amount of glycogen that you have in different parts of the tissue, or whatever. It's like you can literally have mTOR and AMPK on in the same tissue at the same time. It's all just kind you of always creative. do. But yes. yeah, but so no. But the thing that changes chronically, right, is like ribosome count and the number of subsequent enzymes that are in the pathways. Right. So we can actually like increase the number of mTORs, right, and the number of AMPKs that we have, right. And we can because we can change lysosome count, we can change mitochondrial count, et cetera, as well, right. So we can change concentrations to those. And what that does is it allows us to be more sensitive to those things, but it doesn't just turn them on, right. So if you have plenty of fuel in the cell, AMPK doesn't just stay on, but like feed me, right. It it still shuts off, right. Same thing for same thing for mTOR, right? Like it's if it's got enough of the enzyme sitting in the lysosome, right? And then AMPK's got enough fuel, then the switch just turns over as long as the stimulus is there. So it's not like that if you've been driving a bunch of AMPK, that AMPK becomes this bully, like outside of the acute variable of like when you need energy, AMPK can become turned on easier to bring the energy in faster. But once energy homeostasis is reestablished, you can still switch over to mTOR just as easy because these things have to be able to move very, very quickly, right? Now, what happens when you, when we do hypertrophy training, we do it for, you know, weeks and months and months and years and years, right? Is we accumulate a higher concentration of enzymes that support the ribosome. We accumulate more energy production in the endoplasmic reticulum. Like those are things that like stick around and we'd have to like be, you know, we'd have to stop training for a long time for those levels to really go down. And in fact, doing a little bit of training is gonna keep them up more than doing no training. So if you're looking at like how much that would shift, doing nothing or doing close to nothing would actually result you into having less, like the, the you would, when we look at resensitization, 
you could say that like, well, doing nothing would make it so that you could turn on the mTOR easier than if you were still doing something. But it would also mean that you'd likely have fewer mTOR and fewer ribosomes. So the actual net hypertrophy that you could do would be less if you were like completely deconditioned. It's more, we already know it's more from direct literature. Like people who don't train for a while grow much faster after they've not been training for a while than people who have been training in endurance. They grow very slowly, quite poorly actually. So yeah, but say, that's, that's not a fair comparison because that's people that haven't been training for a while versus people that have chronically been doing endurance training. That's not people wouldn't that, that like, just be I like was... a microcosm of what we see with uh, one week. It just expanded. It's like if someone detrained for a week versus someone did more endurance type work for a week, wouldn't we expect the person who detrained for a week to just marginally experience more rebound hypertrophy than the person who trained in endurance for a week? I don't think you can draw that conclusion. And we're also talking about different magnitudes of aerobic activity, right? Because sure. we're not talking about dropping weights completely and just switching over sure, and sure. having people do, you know, two hours on the Stairmaster or whatever. We're just having people lift weights a little faster. Sure. So right? is there a reason and, to think that, that relationship completely flips? Um, so, I'm, so I'm saying is like, in the grand scheme for a longer periods of time, multiple weeks, not training much or training much less makes you more sensitive to hypertrophy. Training more or training to... Uh, sort of activate endurance type of adaptations makes you less sensitive to hypertrophy. Yeah. And that, and now what I'm saying is if we shrink that down to just a week, very, very tiny, almost indiscernible differences, but on paper and theory, like the detrained or downtrained group would still be marginally more sensitive by a smidge than the group that trained, you know, with uh, all the AMPK stuff. Um, is, is there, is there a reason to believe that if just exposed for one week at a time or in some special way, that the AMPK group somehow nets an advantage in hypertrophic sensitivity to the to the detrained group. Uh, well, one, if, you if, have the you have the overlapping benef benefit of that you are just taking time away from the weight training thing, right? So, because in this instance, it's not an and or. We're kind of layering these two things on top of each other, right? So it's, it's you can't compare it, right? So it's just like okay, well, I'm I'm deloading but I'm also changing the way I'm training. So I can't compare that to just deloading or just training in, in the aerobic way, in the way that we see that in the literature, right? The other thing is that I don't think that the physiology moves linear because you have this like, okay, you have all these adaptations for hypertrophy that don't just like snap off like the second that you stop training, right? So it's, our body doesn't want to make a big change just because like, like if I do something today, it doesn't want to forget about everything that I've done the last like six weeks based off of today. So it, there's, I think it's more of a, you know, kind of a logarithmic type curve of, you know, our current adaptations have a certain period of time before they're going to start to decline, right? And then it'll be a sharp decline, whatever. And same thing for other things coming up, right? So there's a lot of things in there that would make me say, like, I don't, I don't, that's not what I've seen in practice. And I also don't think that that would correlate to what we see in the literature, just because it's instead of two separate things, they're layered. And the time scale is so different. And I don't think the physiology, physiology moves so linearly that we could look at something that was over a long time course and apply it to just what would happen over the course of the week. The other thing to consider there is, is that, you know, we take time completely off and we become deconditioned. We're really good at hypertrophy, right? But also like, what is the net of that, right? Because it's like, well, if let's just say that, you know, you were going to, you got injured, right? And you couldn't, like you couldn't train the way that you train. Would you do absolutely nothing for six weeks or would you do something to maintain some sort of conditioning, right? And same answer, what if it was 10 weeks? What if it was 12 weeks? Because like how long, it, how long does it have to be where doing nothing all of a sudden becomes worse than like doing something that would be, you know, just keeping you 
in shape, but not necessarily good for hypertrophy, yeah. right? So it's like, okay, I maybe not be as, as sensitive, but if I, I don't think the best strategy for hypertrophy is just like, well, uh, I'm just going to take two months and not sit on the couch, right? I totally. think that would have more of a negative effect, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the the, the deloading, the, the, the central idea about with deloading as far as training volume is to do the, the smallest amount of volume you can do to like not lose muscle size. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea behind deloading secondarily is we're not actually trying to drive any adaptations. We're doing the opposite mm-hmm. of driving adaptations, trying to give the body a break from driving adaptations entirely because driving adaptations raises technically raises fatigue. Um, so if there's a fatigue-free way of driving adaptations, I'd sure love to know about it. If it comes in a needle, I already know about it. Huh? Ooh, that's not fatigue-free either. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, so in any case, uh, you know, I think that the idea behind deloading is to do as little as possible um, and not really activate AMPK much because it's already super active and super sensitive and ready to turn you into more of an endurance machine, sort of let it cool down and actually as well activate mTOR as little as possible is just enough to keep your muscle mass so that it also cools down. So you basically have like mTOR and AMPK is super overactive towards the end and AMPK actually predominates, but then Maybe you activate mTOR just a tiny bit just to keep your muscle, activate AMPK as little as possible, uh, actually less, so that that way the net effect is that mTOR predominates as far as average, the average set of 10 mTOR is now going to be a little bit more sensitive to AMPK coming back the week after. And then we'll really get into you know building back up, increasing volume. As you increase tons of volume and, and intensity and effort, et cetera, AMPK and mTOR start, you know, get really, really crazy high activity again. AMPK starts to get higher because the volume of work goes up. It inhibits mTOR, mTOR starts to shrink, AMPK comes back up. So we get back into a deload. We want mTOR just a little bit stimulated so that we keep our muscle. So it also cools down. Uh, but uh, it's actually su- sufficiently cooled down at that point anyway from all the AMPK exposure. But we definitely want AMPK to, to really come down and exposure, stop being a net catabolic regulator and start being something that it's just, uh, you know, allocating energy sort of uh, behind the scenes, uh, more of its uh, function in that way. Because essentially, like as you train a lot, uh, multiple sets of 10 to 20, et cetera, you become more endurance like at the end of a mesocycle than at the beginning. And that means you're less sensitive to hypertrophy than you ideally be or want to be. And then also because you have to do more and more and more to keep chasing that little bit of mTOR that's left over, then you're in a position where you have to impose a lot more fatigue in order to get the same thing. And it's, as you and I both agree, that's not a sustainable course of events. But in my perspective is during the deload, you just do the minimum possible to keep your muscle mass and you just do nothing else on top of that as much as you can just leave everything alone you know because there's some active rest is good there's a component of you still still going to the gym still training a little bit but if you can do that as little as leaves the muscle alone and keeps you relatively conditioned to come back in the gym and not totally fuck up right that's that in my view is probably what you should be doing there but seemingly in view of you Kaz and I don't want to paint the wrong picture is we want to do something a little different as well within that context to get us some sort of other kind of benefit. So to me, my my problem with that is like, if those are AMPK mediated benefits, we're, we're poking the very thing that we're for one fucking week not supposed to be poking at. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. I would disagree with your assessment with the AMPK thing because acutely to sensitize mTOR, I would actually want to drive AMPK. How, how does that work? I, I thought it was the other way around. So while, well, I mean, it, if I want to resensitize mTOR, right, then I'm going to do the thing that is inhibiting mTOR, right? More, more of that type of activity. So then, then when that stimulus switches, 
then the mTOR comes on even easier, right? So acute. So if we if we look at things where we're doing if they're doing things acutely, it's like all right, you know, if I can take things that like e and you can look at it even um, through a supplementation lens of like things that like bring up AMPK, right? If then we throw a bunch of food in these people, right? We can switch over to mTOR to a greater degree because we can get more an example of that? Um, I think the best one is probably uh, alpha lipoic acid. If, I'll, if I can dig it up, I'll try and send it over to you via email. Um, but acutely, if we're trying to resensitize, like if we have an we have this push and pull, like off and on switch thing, I would look at us as like, well, all right, well, if I'm trying to get more sense, I'm trying to not push mTOR a lot so that I can be more sensitive. I'm not going to be like, well, then I shouldn't push AMPK. Right, because it, actually, what I want is I want AMPK when I switch over to train like afterwards. I want AMPK to be so sensitive that once I start training, it turns on, gets all of that fuel into the muscle, and then shuts off even faster. And then mTOR will be more sensitive to turning on because it's been on less of the time. But how do you think that that process um, collapses in in folks that often turn on AMPK like endurance athletes? So they they have really amazing AMPK responses. They're able to shuttle an inordinate amount of glycogen into the cell, but seemingly because of their high AMPK activity, their mTOR is consistently downregulated and just fails to perform at the levels we want. So like if we're using AMPK to sensitize mTOR, kind of like if we could magically take away MPK after that'd be sweet, but it, but it doesn't just go away. You know, we have fiber to, fiber type uh, isoform transitions that, you know, last for seemingly weeks. And, and then you're just kind of less, less hypertrophic at, at that point for, for, for some time. Yeah. But when, when are you looking at that? Right. Cause if you're, if you're evaluating that in the athlete, that's still doing the activity or the nutrition protocol that drives the AMPK, well then of course you're going to see that the mTOR activity stays down regulated, Right. Versus if you're like, okay, we had this person do this activity and this type of diet, and then we switch them over to a surplus and hypertrophy style training, right? The AMPK is not going to stay active and bully the mTOR in that situation, right? In the ath- in, in the endurance athlete, right? Well, they it get is, because AMPK is always activated during on. training. AMPK yeah, is activated well, all the time during training. So it's more yes. active, and then you start turning it on again, and it stays more active than it otherwise would have been. Like So for example, if you're in better shape, if you, if you come into a situation where you leg press on a week one because you did the AMPK training in the, in the deload week, week one, you come in and you actually feel really good. You feel really recovered. You, you feel uh, like your endurance is better. Your heart rate's better. That to me means you're probably less anabolic because your AMPK activity is actually quite good, which is great. It allows you to perform, but it directly inhibits your ability to actually gain muscle because it's so active. Um, so let me reverse this and I'll, I'll ask you the, the question. So what shuts off the AMPK? Uh, uh, generally like doing less activity. Right. So well, immediate, like at a molecular level, what shuts off the AMPK, right? There's a bunch of stuff, but it could be like your nutrient stores are full. Your muscles are no longer contracting. Your ATP levels are high enough. Stuff yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. So in the endurance athlete, when they're doing activity that's constantly depleting, depleting the energy and there's the increased cellular demand for the energy and their glycogen levels are being broken down, right? It stays active until that homeostasis has been reestablished. That means that, you know, in, in those states, right? It's gonna stay active longer, right? 
because the demand has been we need to accumulate more fuel, right? We're going to because they're going to store more glycogen on average because that's the type of training they're doing or whatever, right? But it's not going to stay on after that homeostasis, right? Once, once AMP, like the big thing, like especially during training, is the actual AMP molecule, right? That's that's when we're breaking down ATP so fast, right? That we're like the ADPs are catabolizing each other, and we're getting ATP and AMP, right? So that five X is the activity of the AMPK, right? So in that extreme state of training, yes, yeah, super active, right? And it's because the energy demand is super high. Okay, now when we start switching back over into the hypertrophy training, right? When we're training, we still want the AMPK on because actually the activity that we're doing is actually more AMP like active because it's a higher intensity activity than an aerobic activity, right? So it will come on to a higher degree, right? But provided that we're actually fueling the body, right? So we're in some sort of surplus, like we're able to get the fuel in there to rebalance ATP, right? And to bring glycogen levels back up right? Then that's the condition for mTOR to come on. And mTOR, right? Like it's basically in order for it to run, it doesn't run for free, right? It's still like the majority of your protein synthesis is run by the endoplasmic reticulum and the ribosome. And the big adaptation to hypertrophy type training is, is that those tissues become much more metabolically active. So actually being able to pull that energy in there faster is a good thing. And I don't, I, I haven't seen anywhere in the literature that once we switch over, the AMPK starts violating the physiology and is going to be like, well, I'm going to stay on and suppress mTOR longer, even though the, even though the, like the biochemical conditions have been met, there's, you know, the phosphagen levels are rebalanced, glycogen is rebalanced, et cetera. If anything, the thing that would probably, you know, stay on a little bit more is that maybe the, there'd be a little bit lag in like that the glute tra floor transporters would be a little bit higher, right, uh, expression, or there would be more cellular or membrane relocation of them because of all of the aerobic adaptations, right? And so potentially I would see it's like, well, probably we can get that stuff in there a little bit faster. I think, and this would be my hypothesis, is that the biggest difference we see in hypertrophy from people that do a bunch of aerobic activity and then coming over is not necessarily that it's they've gotten so good at AMPK, it's that neurologically, they're just not as good at producing high intensity contraction in the muscles, right? So like their ability to contract as many, like as many muscle fibers when they're doing resistance type exercises is lower. And they've had these capillary and they've had these fiber type adaptations, right? And so until they can generate more tension within the muscle, right? And that will then create a little bit more pressure. And then that will then make it a little bit easier to tax the muscle because the occlusion properties, et cetera, they essentially have a little bit of a blunted hypertrophy response or increased demand in order to get that hypertrophy stimulus. But I don't think that it's causal that they've just gotten so good at activating AMPK or that it's staying active. I think it's a lot has to do with the capillary fiber type and the tension and pressure properties that just simply make the task of resistance training not as stimulatory towards mechanical tension for them because they contract less and they can fuel it better. You think they contract less than untrained people or more than untrained people? Um, well, I think they probably contract better than untrained people, but their delivery, they of, fuel, worse results for but their delivery of fuel is so much better 
than untrained people. So the untrained person has not as good of an ability to contract, but they also have a very poor delivery of fuel. So they don't have to contract as well to get that same stimulus because they can get those occlusion properties easier. Whereas the endurance person, right, might be able to contract a little bit better, but that's offset by the fact that their occlusion properties are vastly changed and possibly the fiber typing thing as well. Sure. I think, I think mechanical tension probably predominates as far as hypertrophic cause versus occlusive properties considerably. That's state of literature as far as I know it. So like if they're really good at, if they're better at contracting their muscles than untrained people, they get less of an occlusive effect. I would still say just on, on that, those two variables alone, I would still expect endurance athletes who are really used to training quite hard. I would, and also they can do way more work. The ability to do volume of work is, is way, way higher than people who are untrained or, or less mm-hmm. trained. But, but all those things combined, uh, they still grow less than untrained people when they begin programs. And this, to me, it, it seems that maybe endurance folks who have activated AMPK a lot uh, over some time have altered their, their cellular physiology to some extent, for example, as typified by a transition to a slower isoform fiber, uh, that they have become really, really good at endurance expression, energy liberation, energy use, and not so good at anabolism. Uh, so it's, isn't that something of like what we're getting for a week or two if we do this kind of deloading? Marginally more AMPK activity over that time makes you marginally worse at hypertrophy afterwards because it, on the margins by a very slight amount, shifts your physiology a little bit towards less hypertrophic. Don't we want to shift it to more hypertrophic? You know, don't we want to detrain a little bit? Well, of course, trying to keep as much muscle as we can. Wouldn't it be our ideal just to get a little bit out of shape, so to speak, so that we can get really sensitive to hypertrophy versus really in shape? Uh, so that we can be less sensitive to hypertrophy on the margins? Well, we only need to resensitize to the things that we're trying to then push in training, right? Like we don't need to, like, if you look at adaptation, it's like, well, there's just adaptation is just this one thing. That's, I mean, we're always getting some sort of adaptation. We're just changing, like, even if you do absolutely nothing, you're just changing what those adaptations are, right? And so from a hypertrophy perspective, all you have to do is make sure that, like, you are resensitizing, you are detraining the, the primary stimulus and stresses that you're using to get the stimulus in your hypertrophy meso, right? So if it's more mechanical tension based and we're following those pathways, it's like, all right, I'm trying not to put in a stress that is going to keep those things upregulated. I'm going to try and do something that is going to back off. And it doesn't have to be zero. It just has to be below what was basically an adaptive stimulus before for those things to come down. Um, I don't. I think we're kind of probably at an impasse on the AMPK thing because I think we're looking at that differently in terms of molecular. Like, I don't see it. I don't see the AMPK as this anti-anabolic thing. I look at it as it's like, literally this what is, it is just, this is just, well, but only it's it's just that it's a momentary, right? Because if if you didn't it's have not AMPK, just momentary, it's chronic. It's very well demonstrated AMPK, to be chronically suppressive of hypertrophy. Yes, if it's like, on, if it's always on. Was on for a week, you know, a week of training is better than it'd be off for a week, wouldn't it? So potentially more hypertrophy later. Yeah, but I mean, it really, it's, it's it's these things are on and off, on and on and off, on and off during the day, right? Like every time you eat, right? Like AMPK goes down and mTOR goes up, like that's you know. And then when you don't eat, it switches around, like you know, so meal spacing and all these things are constantly going off and on, right, into varying degrees, right? So. I look at AMPK as more of like, this is just step one in terms of getting stuff into the cell, right? And mTOR is then, now we can do stuff with that stuff that's in the cell. If you if you wanna simplify it that way, it's just like AMPK says, take stuff from the, you know, the blood, 
get into the cell, right? And that that is a prerequisite before mTOR can do anything. So if AMPK never turns on, mTOR, it can be on, but nothing's happening, right? There's no energy to do anything. So I don't look at it as like, if we have AMPK on, that's that's bad. It's just that, well, what needs to happen is that cycle needs to always you know, turn over, right? And that's based on nutrient delivery. So it's like, if I have enough amino acids and I have enough fuel, then I'm always gonna stimulate AMPK when I need the fuel to come in. And then when there's enough, then the mTOR is gonna turn on and provided I have the amino acids, then I'm gonna, you know, make the proteins, especially if there was a stimulus coming in and that process is just gonna repeat over and over and over and over again. And I don't think of it like, you can look at it as like, well, AMPK is the bad guy because when he's on, mTOR is off, but if he doesn't do his job, then mTOR, never gets to do his job. I just look at this as it's this order of operations. I actually qualify in our courses that AMPK is anti-catabolic because the better it is, right? Actually, the better you are at getting fuel into the muscle, right? It's kind of how, like, I don't qualify it as a, it's catabolic to glycogen within the cell in that moment, but it's anabolic catabolic to, to glycogen. So it's only catabolic to protein in the absence of fuel, right? Meaning that, you know, survival over, death you know well, i think that, it's catabolic that, to protein all time when it when it's upregulated in, in animal models it just leads to catabolism even if you have a high presence of amino acids now high presence of amino acids independently sh shuts ampk down but if you keep it upregulated through other means it'll it'll cause less anabolism as well, one quick question for you kaz i was probably getting close to the time uh, so, so you've been sort of inferring uh, recently that as the ampk and mTOR elevations and reductions are transient in nature so if they're transient, what is the benefit of having an AMPK dominant deload if we're not going to get anything on the other end of that? Like it's just up and down, up and down. We're ostensibly the same the week after. Why bother? Well, so the other thing that kicks off with these is that like if you push, if you push one of these hard enough and you push it long enough, right? So the same thing with mTOR, right? Is the magnitude and the length of time that these things are elevated, then there are different genetic cascades that kick off after that right so that's where you're looking at like okay am i now improving and changing the you know at a genetic level like how many glute 4 transporters that i'm going to have in the cell right how much glycogen synthase that i'm going to have in the cell so what we're hoping to do then is say okay when we start our next meso we're going to be in a position to get blood glucose or to get glucose into the muscle better we're going to be in a position to store a little bit more glycogen than we were before right and then maybe we're also going to have a little bit higher tolerance to some of the oxidative stress in training right so that like okay now we can and, and it's like you don't like you know obviously it's not the same as like buffering oxidative stress but just being slightly a little bit less shitty at throwing electrons to the mitochondria that then puts me in a you Isn't know oxidative a stress hypertrophic have well it is right so, but the thing Why is, we is want that, to reduce it. But it's not necessarily that you want to reduce it. You just want to make it more manageable, right? Meaning that like it's it, the, the devil's always in the dose, right? So if you're getting, if your mitochondria are becoming too inefficient, right? Then you're getting too much oxidative stress and you're getting poor energy production, right? And then that can be more inflammatory than needed for the same amount of stimulus that you would otherwise be getting, right? So you want like, you know, and when it comes to like, you know, managing oxidative stress and stuff like that. It's like, you're not, you're never going to eliminate it, right? What you just don't want to do is you don't want to make an, a disproportionate amount to the amount of stimulus that you're driving because that's just basically eating into your recovery, so to speak, right? Because you're just going to get more, more inflammation and a delayed response, you know, or delayed anabolic response to it, right? So you, again, I'm not talking about turning people into endurance athletes. I'm just talking about having them not suck metabolically, right? So, and, and if you're in your rear view, that doesn't come at a cost of hypertrophy. 
in, in my in in what I've seen, it's actually the opposite. We actually get better results over time this way, right? And that's what that's what I looked at because we I did seven rounds of that six months like protocol, and we tweaked it different ways, et cetera, and stuff. And that was the thing that like we really saw is like, okay, if we look at this over a larger period of time, taking this approach seemed to be just a a win, and definitely I would say even more of a win for natural people, they just seem to be more susceptible to, you know, anything that would, you know, inhibit their recovery, right? They just, it just seems to affect them a little bit more, right? So if you're, if you're tracking biometrics, you know, and we were looking, you know, cause we would always have a mix of, you know, natural and not natural people is it's that the people that had a little bit of assistance, they could push through some, what we would say is like negative biometric feedback coming back in a little bit more, a little bit longer. And they would still make progress in terms of their, you know, progressive overload in terms of their photos and stuff like that a little bit longer. Whereas the people that didn't have that, it's just like, as soon as those started to kick in, then we, they, we would see that also play out in terms of their training performance and all of the, you know, subjective feedback and stuff as well, a little bit sooner. There's just a little bit less tolerance to it, which makes sense, right? Because their physiology is changing organically in response to those stresses where somebody else is like, well, this may have been a position where normally my natural testosterone might be, you know, dropping and stuff, but that's not going to happen if, you know, I don't have to, I'm not limited by that. I haven't made natural testosterone in years. Yeah. It's not a direct quote from me. That's me paraphrasing. <laughs> anyway, I just, right. I, don't, I have one question if we have time, just very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, just because I know Kaz mentioned uh, potentially being more efficient uh, due to, I think, less time potentially dieting. And you mentioned that it potentially keep you leaner. I just had then the question of what do you do with nutrition during that period of time? I didn't want to make any assumptions. Yeah, I mean, we're, I'm trying. I'm trying to take what we do and lump it all in one thing. But really, yeah. there's a variety of ways that we do this because essentially, what we'll have is we'll. I'll put it into three categories. It's like we have one deload where it's like it's a systemic deload, meaning it's like all right, we're taking somebody, and then what we're doing is we're putting them into like we'll call it a systemic phase where the goal is actually to systemically condition them. And then we might have one that's more of what we call an AMPK phase, where it's we're focusing more on the local conditioning, and that would be the Dinsteronda like eight by eight or incomplete rest method. And then when we have a neuro deload, that's where it's like all right, we might be taking somebody, and then we're going to put them on like a lower rep, like we're basically decreasing metabolic you know work and so when i look at mike's training mike you train in like a variety of rep ranges like you might have some sets that are relatively high reps and some sets that are relatively low reps we tend to be a little bit more constrained meaning that likely in between these like if somebody's training high reps it's like the majority of their sets are all high they're not like some high some low or somebody's like doing more of a low yeah, i used like, to do that all the time Andre, or whatever so it's so when we're doing this then it's very easy to say like well okay if they were doing this one then what we're going to do is we're going to step away from that stimulus we're going to do the thing that's very deviated from that and then so from a nutrition perspective then it becomes like okay well if this person is we'll say the, the they're very deconditioned in terms of a metabolic standpoint and I want to push more of that well then I'm not going to pull their calories back too much I'm probably going to keep them at least at maintenance right so that basically we're not doing a deficit and trying to do a conditioning type protocol right but if it if they're fairly conditioned and they don't have to push that very much and my goal is actually to like let a little bit of body fat come off of this or whatever then I'm like all right we're going to put this amount of training in here that'll be enough to keep the muscle mass get a tiny bit of you know conditioning adaptations but also peel off a bit of body fat at the same time so that it kind of depends on 
what we're trying to accomplish during that. And the more we're trying to actually push something with the training, the more we're going to be close to maintenance nutrition. And the more we're trying to like, you know, do a, like just a little bit of a body cop, body comp, more of just a straight deload, then the more we might bring it into a, a little bit of deficit. And there also might be times where we're hoping for a super compensation and we might actually keep them in a surplus, right? Like if we've just finished and it's like, we're doing more close to the traditional deload, right? It might be. And a lot of times in that case, sometimes it's like, well, you're going to keep them on the same diet and we're just going to bring the training volume down. And so the surplus comes from just the reduction in and training just to make it easier on the, on the client, you know? Okay, cool. I don't know if Mike, you have any more questions. I know we're over uh, time I'm, already. I'm so yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> certainly no more questions given me a lot of time. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, guys, uh, that was, I mean, I was obviously listening and uh, taking it all in, probably have to re-listen to this to try and take it all in again. I'm sure that the listeners will be the same as always very interesting uh, to hear your back and forth and, it was nice, at least, I think, just as I would give this to the listeners, you both had the same definition of a deload. So I think the, the kind of differences between the methods can't be too extreme. If you're both seeing that fatigue reduction and setting up that next mesocycle, you can't be doing anything too absurd, which I think is a, a good thing and a good take home for people. I don't know if either of you have any closing comments you want to make. Otherwise, we can kind of leave it there. One thing I will add is, is that we still do just the traditional deload too. Like that's still, that's still something we do. It's just that we also like, when we think that we can get two birds with one stone, then we like, it's like, Hey, if that can get us more over the course of time, we do it. But there are definitely times and situations where we just do like yeah, the deload is just less. Right. So, cause especially, especially if the training that they've been doing is like more broad, meaning they've been doing some heavy stuff and so it's like, it doesn't give us a place to go with the training where we could be getting a drastically different stimulus, then it's like, well, the only thing that we can do is just bring the volume, you know, all, all the way down. And so that'll be, you know, then we'll do the deload just, just like Mike does it. Cool. Guys, thank you so much. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. I'll make sure to link these guys up, all their social media and everything. If you're not already following them, definitely do. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. 
the exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy. We're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.